0: Today is Sunday, it is January 5th, 2020, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have a word of prayer. Uh, oh, actually, we are already going to have uh, the thought of the week, and we will have prayer after that. So, I, will...
1: I thought of the week, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has his glory the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. God says is not fuzzy. It is correct, and God really did take two and make them one. The 2 questions question is Jews and Gentiles. This concept will challenge you and reveal your heart. Here's a teaching which is hard for us to believe. We are to believe that God has done this special work in us. We are to trust that this is a reality and conduct ourselves as accordingly. However, on the outside, those same distinctions remain in the world. They are they are ever present before everyone's view. So. We are walking by faith or by sight. What do you see? So from now on, we require no, so from now on, we require no one, I'm sorry, so from now on, we require, so from now, so from now, or we require no, you are to trust God here.
0: Oh, no, no not one a, from a worldly point of view.
1: From a worldly point of view, I can certainly tell you what we are supposed to see. But I ask you, what do you see, believer? You are to trust God here. God Himself did the work to make this possible. Not you. You, your behaving a certain way does not make this true. God did it. And the proper response to what God did is to accept the reality of it. I am what God has faith. The old phrase, the old has gone, the new has come. Reflect on this phrase, live in it and come to love it. We always take it from the point that we are believers in Christ that we are a new spiritual species. And what God did in eternity, also when Christ went to the cross, he had destroyed the wall of hostility, the wall, the barrier. dealing with that fact that the old ways of them doing things, and now everything is related to what Christ has done. Some people still live by that wall. You know, some people still, that wall has not been divided or broken down yet, but they still believe the two. Even though the word says he had destroyed this, but, some believers just don't take that to accept to believe it. So when it says that when we have made the two ones, he makes the Jews and Gentiles as one. Even though in the church there is no Jew or Gentile, we are all believers in Christ, there is no racial distinction. But some people, they still believe that. So we are in a new dispensation of time where, as it's done in the past, everything now has been. Has been abolished. So this is what I get from the thought of the week. The scripture says, the old has gone, the new has come. The older, the older you are doing in Adam, now you're in Christ. Now you are a new spiritual creation. We are reflected the do things that God has put us to do. So this is what I get from the thought of the week. So at this time we have the white
2: to lead us in prayer. Thank you very much, Dave. And yes, I'll lead us in prayer and continue to include our families, the church, our extended families. Are there any special requests you would like to add? We
1: can pray for me and my family, your and the church.
2: Of course. Of course, Dave. Thank you. Let us bow our heads as we come before our Father in Heaven. Dear God, I I ask you to um, bless our time together this morning as we go over your your thoughts, your deep thoughts, and your plans for us, and we look at the intricacies of, of your Word and look how everything is perfectly related to us so that we can understand what you are all about and who we are in Christ. As Dave said, and it's emphasized that the old has gone, the new has come. Well, let us take the time to understand this new, to fully grasp it and own it. I pray for Word of Truth Church, people on this call, um, members of the church, wherever they may be, and also Christians and churches worldwide, um, wherever they may be, and uh, may their hearts become one, just as we are striving to become one. Let us be eager to maintain a unity of the spirit. I pray for all our families and our extended families. And uh, one name comes to mind is Gretel. Uh, I pray that she is uh, successful in, in overcoming the cancer, that you were able to heal her body in that regard. I pray for the, the lost, that they may be saved. And I pray for the saved, that they may become mature and fully um, equipped with the truth. Um, around the world, we know that things as the, uh, the fires in Australia, and I pray also for the leaders of various countries where we are now hearing wars and rumors of war. Let not our hearts be troubled, neither shall we be afraid. And these things I pray in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you, Dwight. And thank you, Dave. We are continuing with John chapter 14. We are already at verse 10 today, and we want to look at some of it. There's a lot here in verse 10 and 11, and you should have notes, so hopefully, you can follow along with uh, what we're doing. And uh, so, let me get right to it. It is now 2020. Let's go to work. So, So, It finally comes down to what we believe. While I give the disciples credit for their believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the Living God, they were now challenged beyond anything they ever experienced. They were in the midst of a theological crisis. They would have to stand alone if they were to believe the words of Jesus apart from the religious and political leaders of their day, whom they respected all of their lives. They couldn't run from their fears. They had to stand on the fact that God had demonstrated beyond any doubt that this man they have been following for three years is speaking truth. That truth will be different from anything they imagined. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, as it says in 1 Corinthians 2.9. Would they fully trust him? The religious leaders are already at odds with him and even tried to kill him. Quote, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and, you, and yet you are going back? This is in John 11.18. The disciples were in the best spot they could be, challenging their preconceived religious ideas. We should learn to respect their contribution to the body of Christ. And this is where, uh, in Ephesians 2.20, it says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and Jesus Christ as a chief cornerstone. Apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ as a chief cornerstone. So we are entering into this uh, plea from Jesus, this appeal, uh, where he really is pressing on the disciples to believe what they have seen, what they have already uh, been shown by God to be reality. So we'll continue with, with that thought. So... Let's break this down into phrases like we normally do. Don't you believe? First thought is Jesus is the odd man out here. None of the disciples trusted the words of Jesus. They were foreign and radical to them. Remember, even when we look at Ephesians 3, Paul makes the point of saying, in verses 2 and 3, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. And in verse 5, which I don't have there, but in verse 5, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So when we say Jesus was the odd man out, Jesus was introducing these new things to the disciples. And it is easy for us to understand how the disciples had not heard. (laughs) But by the time the Apostle Paul came along and had been teaching this for quite a while, and not only him, but the other apostles as well, he could say, surely you have heard, or you have heard of, uh, this new dispensation, which was given to me for you. But, and so it is, when Jesus spoke these words, there was no corroboration from other human beings on earth. There was no people who could say, yeah, in fact, uh, if you look in the Old Testament, here's what Jesus is saying. No, because it was all new territory. And they had to believe uh, what Jesus said. Based on what they had experienced through signs, wonders, and miracles that they had seen from the Father through Jesus. Like Nicodemus. No man can do the things you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus was aware of that. Even before he became a believer. The disciples followed Jesus. The disciples saw far more miracles than Nicodemus did. They saw all of the miracles of Christ you could almost say not all of them but most of them. So if anybody is going to believe the words of Christ, it is literally the disciples that were right there in front of them. And yet what we what do we find? we still find reticence on their behalf uh, when it came to putting their trust in Christ. It was radical, it was foreign. And so, what do we say about them? Oh, they're slow. Oh, they're slow to understand. They're pretty dumb. If it was me there, I would have just readily believed it. I don't believe that would be the case. I think the disciples are a microcosm of what we would have done. And not only that, we have evidence of when it comes to new theology. When When the Lord teaches us something new, we are slow to believe. We take our time, don't we? And each of us can answer that for ourselves. So he was an odd man out here. Yeah. They didn't trust his words. Just like he said in the beginning of the discourse. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to tell you things. Trust in me like you're trusting in God. So point two. I want you to believe. So so the disciples neglect of the, t- the teaching leads Jesus to stress their cooperation by reasoning from the sheer logic of what they witnessed and that goes along with what i already said and that is that the disciples were privy to all of the miracles all of the signs all of the wonders they knew that this i mean this man walked on water he raised the dead he I, what couldn't what did he not do he they saw him ascend to heaven after it was all done. He was resurrected before their eyes. I can go on. But he healed uh, all manner of sickness and disease. and He didn't heal some of the people who came to him. He healed all of the people, it says. And there were throngs of people coming to Jesus. This is not something that was uh, isolated Oh, he was in a cave somewhere, and he there was this miracle, and, and we were just supposed to believe it. No, this was public displays of the divine entering into the human realm. That's what we have to understand. So, obviously, with all of that, it doesn't mean that the disciples automatically believed everything Jesus said. They did not. They heard what he said. But they kind of like pushed it aside and said, well, maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about. Or, you know, his theology is certainly strange. But, and in one case, Peter tried to correct Christ. To say, look, you you don't know what you're talking about. Don't even talk this way anymore and don't say it anymore. And that is when Christ rebuked Peter. It was good that he did because we needed to make sure... Who was Lord here? Was it Peter or was it Christ? It was Christ. And Peter should have recognized that he was not the Lord, but Christ is the Lord, and Christ knows what he's talking about. So notice, they openly rejected what Christ said. They did not believe it. So when you see these statements, don't you believe? Don't you believe? Believe this. If you don't get that, believe at least believe this. Jesus is pleading with them to believe what he said. Not to say, let me tell you for the first time. He told them already what these doctrines were. They just did not receive them. They heard them. They didn't believe it. So point C. Let's move forward. This discourse is Jesus making a stand. Introducing the disciples to the mystery and later their acceptance of it. So remember, they had already believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. They understood who the Messiah was, and that was Jesus Christ. They had enough evidence to believe that. They trusted that that was, he was the Messiah. There was no question about their salvation. Jesus confirms it in other passages where we read in John chapter uh, 13, where he talks about all of you are clean, right, uh, Peter, and John chapter 6, is another example of Jesus confirming that the disciples understood that he was the Messiah and that was salvation. Here we have where Jesus is introducing something unique to the disciples. And it really presses on their willingness to believe the words of Jesus. Not only the words of Jesus, but also their concept concept of the Messiah. Like they believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. They believed that, but who was that Messiah, and what would that Messiah go on to do? Their understanding of of eschatology was not correct. When Jesus tried to correct it to include the New Age information, they rejected it. Simply put. So Jesus takes a stand. He makes a stand to say, listen, here it is. And and not only he didn't just say it like he said it in previous discourses, he impressed on their minds, Don't you believe? Believe me when I tell you that this is so. Right? Understand that I'm telling you something that is truth. And don't don't look back on this as like, oh yeah, he said that before, but no, Jesus stops and he looks at each of them in the eye and he says this is information you need to believe and we need to think about it that way too so point D is do you believe? what happens when you're faced with uh, theology that is difficult or different from what you previously held and how do you handle that? do you approach it with humility? Do you you know go back and say well uh, I don't understand what he was saying, but, uh, you know, out of commitment, I'm going to continue to follow this man. Or do you examine it? You allow yourself to to listen to what is being said, uh, to humbly uh, think about it before you obviously believe it. Of course you would. So I said, do you believe, recall your own journey when you were challenged with believing the mystery? And you knew when you believed this. It was a departure from traditional Christianity. I'm going to say traditional Christianity because traditional Christianity does not emphasize these things. They talk about Jesus and the Gospels and the miracles, and, but they do not emphasize this information that we're going to be talking about going forward in these chapters. What Jesus is introducing, it, i.e. the mystery. So, do you believe, or don't you believe, that uh, this information is so? Do you realize that it's going to be different? Do you realize the consequences of believing this message, what it will be for you? All of that takes courage. The disciples had to have courage in order to believe the message. So we're going to continue. Let's continue on. There's more for us to consider. So that's point one. Point two says, don't you believe? And it is that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Okay. so there's quite a lot on this and we want to pause and take our time going through it. Hopefully we'll do a good job. There's a lot here. And uh, so let's dig in. First, the first point: the best way for Jesus to teach the new theology. Notice I'm calling it the new theology. For us, it's really not new. We've been we've had this theology for two thousand years, and it's astounding to me that people are still seeing it as new as they come to know it. So it's new, but yet it's old. Two thousand years I would consider old. Uh, new is when it dawns on our consciousness. It's new theology. It's different from what traditional Christianity embraces. Uh, so the best way for Jesus to teach the new this this new theology is to live it in front of the disciples. And I give John 10, 37 through 38 on this one. Let's look at that. He was going to live it. This is one of the ways he could demonstrate that's uh, why he would say, Philip says, sure, show us the Father, and then we'll be satisfied. And he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father, right? So in ten thirty-seven and 38, Jesus says this. Now, of course, this whole uh, story is where Jesus was accused of blasphemy. And what he was doing was he was he was accused of making him and the father uh on the same level he was basically saying he was god and and they rejected it v i mean they they just out of hand just said no way is that happening you won't you won't do that in our presence i don't I not read just the immediate context i'll read where the whole thing so jesus was given this discourse he says i Verse 20, I give them eternal life. This is 1028. And they shall never perish. No one shall will snatch them out of my hand. And verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And here's a statement that they objected to. I and the Father are one. And when he said that, uh, the Jews reacted. And when you looked at from what I studied years ago, and I looked at this in the Greek, the way he constructed this sentence is not like we're just one in purpose. It was literally we are on the same level. Right, that's what he meant by one. Verse thirty-one. How did the Jews understand it? What did what was their response? Verse thirty-one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. Now, we're not just talking about throwing stones. And when I was young, as a kid, we had stone fights. We had cherry fights, you know, those those cherries that would grow on trees. And we would have a bunch of cherries and we would throw them at each other and we would have fights, right? That's not what's happening here. They wanted him dead. Stone him means kill him. This is serious. So... And then, just consider this. This is not the first time that they did this. It says, again, his Jewish opponents. This is not, oh, an isolated incident. No, Christ was going around teaching this information. So they picked up stones to kill him. Uh, Dead, right? Not just hurt him. But, but Jesus said to them, he stops them and he says, Have I shown you many good works from the Father? Notice, from the Father. Right? For which of these do you stone me? And this is their response. We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So wh- where does he claim to be God? In that phrase that I just told you in 30. I and the Father are one. So they're telling them straight, <clears throat> this is why we're killing you, because you committed blasphemy, and under the Mosaic law, blasphemy is, the penalty for that is death. 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are gods? Now this is in the Psalm he's pointing out to them that there is a passage. Now, Jesus is acknowledging that he put himself on the level of God. He says, is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. So verse 37, do not believe me. This is the verses, these are the two verses that I um, brought or thought that were appropriate for us to understand. I'm just giving you context. So he says, do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. So notice, He is basically saying that you are supposed to understand, just like Nicodemus did, that I am doing the works of my Father. So then in verse 38, But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father isn't... This is what you need to know. There's a relationship going on here. You need to understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So what what was their response? They said, oh, that's it, that's it, we got it now, I understand. So you know what their response was in verse 39? Again, (laughs) they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Why do you think they wanted to seize him? To kill him. They did not buy what what his excuse was or his, his reasoning was. So again, they tried to kill him, seize him and kill him, but he escaped escaped their grasp. So notice, Jesus says right here in the verse, the father is in me and I am in the father. And this is what he means by I and the father are one. And this is, he is God's son who was sent into the world. So back to our notes. So here we are. Point B in our notes, this is not theory. The Father was was in, and that is, what did we mean by in? Living in, according to the verse that we have before us. Jesus. When the Father, and he says, I am the Father and the Father is in me. He, he, he expands on that in our verse in 14 by saying that the Father is living in him. Living in me, he says in verse 10. Which is the second half of the verse we didn't get to. We're not going to get to today. But you can note it. That living in him is equivalent to the Father is in me. We'll we'll get more to that as we go next week. So, this is, as I said, it's not theory. What we are seeing here, are witnessing is the baptism of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and uh, which would also be the standard for the church. If you look at John 14, 20, he says, On that day you will realize that I am in the Father, fathers, right? I'm living in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So, so this is um, when Pentecost comes, and if you keep reading through 23, you will see, but the whole idea is that what was happening in the person of Christ would also be happening in the church, but not until Pentecost comes. So Christ, in essence, was modeling what would happen later for us. What a object lesson for us to be able to, to identify Christ and watch him, see how he walks, see how his relationship Uh, with the Father, happens to be, and understand even more about what happens in uh, our own experience after Pentecost. So we have this is interesting discussion that we can have. Uh, So so that will be the standard for the church. Not just some people in the church, everybody in the church. Point C. The Baptism of the Spirit Working definition here is what I'm given it and there could could there be more to be said here? Yes, we can talk about it more. So what is the working definition that we have for baptism of the spirit? So here it is baptism. the spirit takes our person uh, or our person is identifies and it, I really screwed up this. I need to th- correct it. the spirit takes our person and identifies us with the person of Christ. Okay? So if I just were to give a quick one sentence, the Spirit takes our person or our persons and identifies them with the person of Christ. Um, So as we discuss this, we now understand that this event happened at Pentecost. This is what Jesus told them to wait for, Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait until the power of the Spirit comes upon you. And we should note that the baptism of the Spirit is characteristic of all of the five ministries of the Holy Spirit. So, baptism is one, as I said, which is used characteristically of all of the other ministries. So, one was baptism. Another one was the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit and the gifting of the Holy Spirit—all of that is characterized by saying the baptism of the Spirit that is coming. Because that, when we when we examine the record, all of those things happened uh, at that time. They received the filling, the baptism, the gifting, and all these things, uh, and uh, the sealing ministry. And that day, you will know that I am in the Father, right, and the Father is in me, and I am in you. You will know it. We will come and we will make our home with you. So, so that happened um, at Pentecost. But now it is uh, normative for every new person who comes into the church uh, in this age upon believing in Christ. So we have scriptures like 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen by one spirit where we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, it doesn't matter who we are, what race, what, what our orientation is. We are baptized into the body of Christ. And if anybody is in Christ, that, that, then they are a new creation. That's who we are, a new creation, something brand new, never before seen in this world. So uh, this is, that's a, when we th- think about the baptism of spirit and we go back to what is baptism, it is the one word that uh, jumps out is the word identification. We are identified in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's how the Holy Spirit takes us out of Adam and takes, but what do you mean out of Adam? Well, he, we leave behind the nature that was Adam and we we leave that behind and we are now associated or united with the person of Christ and now we derive everything that person has and that person now can derive or experience everything we have and we'll go through the scriptures later but i'm just giving a working definition of the baptism of the spirit when we talked about baptism in years past We have identified it with one object being identified or introduced into another object, so much so that the properties of the one object are changed to the properties of the other object. That's a kind of a technical definition. Simply put, if you have a a bucket of dye, red dye let's say, And you introduce or you dip a white shirt, the shirt was white, and you dip it into that red dye and you pull it out, you now have a red shirt, right? The properties of the shirt have changed to the properties of the dye now. So whatever the properties of the dye are, those are now the properties of the shirt. Uh, This is a crude example, but... That is how baptism was understood if we were to look at the etymology of baptism. So now we have brought that etymology into uh, the understanding of what does the Spirit do, the Holy Spirit do uh, for us, where he began at Pentecost. How does that work? Uh, Romans 6 talks about, uh, know you not, that so many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death, his burial, his resurrection, in order that we may live the new life. The new life was was not possible for us to live prior to baptism. The new life is the Kinos life, which new, never-before-seen life. So whatever we had prior, whatever properties we had prior, we now have new properties uh, in Christ because of not Christ doesn't identify with us, we identify with him. He doesn't become us in our sin nature and what we were in Adam and all, all who die in Adam. We become what he is. So that Romans 6 tells us, Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin and alive in Christ Jesus. So we, we have to note, it's not just talking about the spiritual new birth type of life. He's talking about the new life, or that is the resurrection life that Christ is now living. We are now in him. So we talk about us being uh, in Christ and Christ being in us. So that exchange allows us to share his life. So we say share because when we look at the dynamics of how Christ lived, he was there. He didn't say, I'm not Christ. I'm just a father. No, he said, no, the father is living in me. So he was conscious of the fact that the father was in him. He didn't say I'm gone somewhere, but he was conscious of the fact that the father was. Sh- so, so we say share, we share the life of Christ. He shares our life. Now in any relationship, there needs to be authority. So, when it comes to our relationship with Christ, we know the authority is that He is Lord, and we are not. So, even though we are sharing a real, a life with Him, our our lives are merged with Him. Uh, we know, we know that He is in authority. He is Lord over us. So, so these are, as I said, this can go on long a long time because we haven't talked about it. We talked about it, but we haven't talked about it in the detail of the whys and the wherefores. So the result in all of this baptism of the Spirit thing is we can experience His life or share His life while He can experience our life. So what do we get? We have the understanding of being face-to-face with the Father. Right? We are seated with Him in heavenly realms. We've been raised up, seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We now have the experience. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Right, That's us in Christ. What is Christ in us? The life that we live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. Right. The, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Right. Well, so we are dead and put to death, therefore, the things of the previous life. Right? All of these things are relative to... Christ living in us. It is his life now on earth, on the battlefield that is on display. And when it says we are not to wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities of power, spiritual wickedness in, in, in the heavenly realms. So Christ is battling in us. It's not us. Put on the full armor of God. Right? And this is where Christ is literally taking up the battle in on the battlefield with us. We're there. But Christ is the one fighting the battles. It is his wisdom, his thoughts, right? His consciousness that comes to bear in this world through us. Just like the Father was there. He literally Christ didn't say, yeah, the Father's in heaven and I'm just telling you what the Father said. He said, no, the Father is here with me, living with me. So anyway, this is the baptism of spirit. I got some points that we will fully talk about it a little bit more, and uh, hopefully we can engender more discussion because it is an important factor or feature of our spiritual lives. So, um, so, so we we can experience. This is point C still. We can experience his life while he can experience our life. We talked about both sides of it for a purpose to an end. So this last part for a purpose to an end is not to just say, God says, hey, I just want to have some experience with you. I want to know what it's like to walk in your shoes and hey, I'll let you walk in my shoes. That's not it. There's a reason for God to do this. There's a purpose Right. There's an end, and we know that that is God's eternal purpose. What he initially uh, called us from eternity past, before time began, in Christ, uh, before the world began, as it says. This is our destiny. Right? This is the eternal purpose of the Father. So it's God is not just playing around with us here, having fun. He has a goal in all of this, and that's what I want to make sure we see through the baptism of the Spirit. Point D, another one that is also interesting to think about. So we could say that Jesus experienced the baptism of the Spirit. Uh, Well, why do we say that? How can we say that? Um, When we think about the baptism of the Spirit on our behalf, how it is, I always looked at it as a negative and a plus. The negative was he took us out of Adam, and Adam all died, right? By one man, uh, condemnation. By one man, death. By one man, the sin nature was passed down. Well, he took us away from all of that, right? We are no longer in our sin nature, and we are now united to the person of Christ. And we can... uh, we can serve in a new and living way, says Romans 7. So it's important that we see that dynamic about uh, our baptism of the Spirit. But for me to say that Jesus had the baptism of the Spirit, is a little odd here because Jesus didn't have the same experience. If it were not for Jesus, we could, we are, we, Jesus is not baptized in the same sense as we are. But why do I say Jesus experienced baptism? Well, Whatever happened with Jesus, he already had the dynamic of him and the Father living, sharing their lives. Their lives were being shared. Christ's life was being shared. Obviously, he was in a position of humility where he allowed the Father to run things. It was the Father's will, not his. Well, he understood that and he lived his life accordingly and so for us it is also it is Christ who is lord although as we see in verse 23 it is not just Christ it is the father right my father will love them this is 14:23 and we not just Christ will come to them and make our home with them so understanding that you know the relationship we have is when I say Christ modeled this relationship, what we want to say there is that he must have <clears throat> had some experience with this concept, this dynamic, this spiritual dynamic relationship. So, for him to model it for us, it obviously had to be working for him. Uh, questions become: When? When did Christ have this? relationship. I'm still calling it the baptism of the Spirit because the life of Christ is identified with the life of the Father and the life of the Father is identified with the person of Christ. Lord of life, Christ. I might be saying it backwards or forwards but either way you know what I mean by the mutual possession of uh, this relationship. So let's look at this for a second here. Um, when did this happen for Jesus, or was this always something? Was Jesus born into this relationship when he was, uh, when he when he became when the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us? When when he was a boy, or when he was, you know, a little baby in the when did when did it happen for Jesus that the Father was in him in this manner, and he was in the Father? As he says, the Father's living in me, doing the right. right. So, when did that happen? What's the timing of this? Now, I don't have explicit an explicit answer for you, but I will give you my answer, and you can discuss it. We can discuss it. It is when Jesus was baptized by John in the River Jordan. That's when I think Jesus received this dynamic relationship. I'm calling it which is the model for what would happen in the church age it was at the baptism of the spirit uh, of jesus baptism in the river jordan by john the baptist so we know at that point in time uh, when john's baptism was the purpose of uh, repentance toward so that people would uh, repent of sin, uh, so that they could prepare themselves, spiritually speaking, so they could see, because we know sin blinds, they could see the Messiah coming. So the uh, baptism of John is for Israel to have a change of mind so that they could receive their Messiah. So what happened? Jesus walks up. John recognizes Jesus and uh, Eventually, Jesus goes into the water and John says, no way, I should be baptized by you. If anything, you, I, me baptize you? No way. Jesus says, he understood that, but do it anyway. Go ahead. Baptize me. So Jesus literally was baptized. And then, just like John was told when the one who the dove comes down on, you're, then you ought to know for sure that that's the one and so forth. And the, the, the voice of heaven spoke. And all of these acknowledgements happened at that point. Now, some people would disagree with me. And they would say, wait a minute, that's not when it happened. They would have some other point in time of when it happened. I would say, okay, I would listen. But I would say that this is when Jesus' ministry began. It began after John the Baptist. After that, he was led into the desert to be tempted of the devil and and then once he finally goes through that uh, he uh, comes back he starts to call his disciples to himself and then he starts his ministry. So in my mind that's when it happened. That's when he began to speak. No we in fact we don't have any commentary on uh, Jesus's. uh years of youth uh, i wouldn't say there's no commentary there are there are some scriptures about it about when he was a baby what happened and and how he had to they had to flee to egypt and so forth all the circumstances we just came through the christmas season where we rehearsed the the birth again but then uh, it says it, as is, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. Right, he, so this is, he was a Jew, so that's what he did. He went into, the, but beyond that, he, we have a, we jump to verse, another verse, and, where he was twelve years old, and he talked to the rabbis, the, the, the Pharisees, and they were impressed with this this young boy's understanding of Scripture, and so um, he talked about he had to be about his father's business. That is all we have. We don't have him doing any miracles, signs, wonders. Any, you know, he was very, very intelligent and smart Jewish person, but nothing to indicate that he taught, or because when it came to the Pharisees, he was he asked questions of them. I think that was what they were impressed with—the questions that he had. If we go back and read it, but the the teaching. Began, it did not begin until after John the Baptist uh, did have the baptism. So it would be my understanding to think that hey, that dynamic relationship that was a part of who he was uh, began at um, that juncture right there. So now, if if we we didn't see any miracles, now of course there are other. Books that are spurious, uh, that are pseudo-books, which are really not, is to say they are not true books. The Book of Mary and, uh, you know, these other books that are actually not canonical would say that, um, oh yeah, Christ did miracles when he was uh, a a, a small boy. Yeah, he, you know, there was a bird that died and Christ saw that bird and had compassion and he made that bird come back to life and the bird goes flying away. and. And they have stories that are very fanciful, uh, but our, the, the biblical record that we have, the the canon of Scripture, does not include any miracles uh, of Christ prior to uh, John the Baptist, uh, him receiving that baptism. Now, we know that he didn't receive the baptism for sin, for repentance. We, we realize that, because in him was no sin. He didn't have to... There was no minus for Christ. There was only a plus for him. For us, it's a minus. We are removed from Adam and we are joined to the person of Christ. And remember, Christ was the last Adam. So being the last Adam, he would not have been in the first Adam. So being that last Adam, he only had to add a plus to what we, we are speaking of in terms of the baptism of the Spirit. So there's more discussion and I hope we can have more discussion on this point and we'll we'll talk about it more as we do but let's get into uh, the next point here where our time our time's okay. So point E he was conscious of his experience and knew the dynamics of the father's presence in him. We also are to have this unique consciousness of this. And I'll give a couple scriptures, John fourteen twenty, It's where we are supposed to have this. On that day, what day is that? Pentecost. This, you will realize, what, what is, you will know, you will realize. This is what I've been telling you. you know? I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So notice he gives half of it. He says, He didn't. The other part is, The Father is in me. But notice, on that day, you, this is something that's going to happen to you. You will realize, I'm in the Father. And, all, and when he says, I am in the Father, this is the very thing he was pleading with them to believe. Right? Believe me, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Right. That's the relationship. Even if I mention only part of that relationship, I'm still talking about that thing that baptism of the Holy Spirit. I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So here, this you and me, and I am you. There's the relationship. But all the things that I've been telling you before are true, and you're going to realize that at Pentecost. So verse 21, whoever has my commands uh, and keeps them is the one who loves me and will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. So then Judas not Iscariot <clears throat> said, how do you intend to show us yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, and my father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. So it won't be just Jesus in us, it'll be the father in us. But now the father as we will see, passes off the role that he has to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is Lord. The Father is there, right? We know now that the Father, his presence is there, but Christ is our Lord and he is the one teaching us the Father's uh, all that belongs to the Father. So so this is, um, as we said, and then there's Romans 8:16 and 17, Right. This is really referring to our conscious mind. right? How does that work? Romans 8, 16 and 17 is where that rubber hits the road. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So this is clearly uh, to say that we have uh, this identity now. And not only do we have that identity, but God wants us to know that we have that identity. So the, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself testifies, bears witness, makes manifest, makes known to our spirits. Right there, He broaches your consciousness at this point to, to let you know that this is true of you. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So this this part, we're children. And what do we we mean by children? Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Christ will gain the victory in this world. We can also share in that as well. So, 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 the consciousness of, of, of this experience uh, is important for us to understand. Like, what does that mean for us? So, point F uh, Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Jesus. So, we've talked about this is mutual possession, right? If I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me, Christ is saying, I am possessing each. Each side is possessing the other. The Father is living in Christ. Christ is living in the Father. We can say that. And that we're going to demonstrate some, of, some more of what that means. Um, so, But this is where the disciples balked in believing. They chose, no, I, don't believe. I heard what you said, I don't understand it, and I don't believe it. This is where they backed up from that. And this is what Jesus is pleading with. How do we know? Because he's pleading with them. Don't you believe this? Don't you believe I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? Don't you understand? Believe me when I tell you this. He's pleading with them to believe it. And this is the point that they did not believe it. So, point G, and I don't know how much time more we have. I think we are nearing the end. I'll give a couple of these points, and then we're going to have to quit. Point G, what is the evidence of Jesus being in the Father and the Father in Jesus, right? So if we were to talk about it practically, like how do we know what that means? I could come up with some spiritual mumbo-jumbo and say that's what it means. Well, what we should do is look at what the scripture says, or look at the evidence that is given in Scripture, and let's take from that what that means. So that's how we'll understand what it means that the Father is in Christ, and Christ is in the Father. And keep in mind, this bears on us, because this same dynamic relationship will be with us and the Father in Christ, as we read in John fourteen twenty through 23. So what's the first thing? In the Father, uh, the teaching of the Father's plan. So this is important to understand. What does it mean for Jesus to be in the Father? What did that mean for for Jesus? Did he walk on uh, ten feet above everybody else because he was he was in the Father and the Father was in him? What's some evidence of that? And, and according to Jesus, well, it was the teaching <laughs> that was. Being in the Father uh, is the teaching of the Father's plan. It was the very crux of the matter. is the very thing that the, those Jews, the disciples, refused to believe. So what was different about what was it that they refused to believe? The teaching of the Father's plan. That was being introduced by Jesus to the disciples. And we should also note that... Um, this was a huge hurdle for the entire early church. I mean, they even had a meeting in John, uh, Acts chapter 15 about you know, this whole thing. You know Whether or not uh, Gentiles could be added, and if they could, what would be the conditions and so forth. I mean, the whole concept of the church, you know, us being one, you know, there's no Jew, no Gentile. All those features of the mystery were debated heavily rejected because they knew that it would be an end to the Mosaic Law. Right? Uh, if we accept these things, we certainly couldn't be under the law at the same time. So, it was the teaching. So, in John 14, 23 and 24, let's look at this. And this is the point we'll probably end on. 14, 23 and 24. Just to note, it is about the teaching. What does the Father bring? Well, there's more that we're going to see when it comes to signs, wonders, and miracles. But mainly, it is the teaching. That is why when Jesus says in John 16, I have much more to tell you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of Truth, comes, so that Spirit of Truth is giving us the augmented, additional information that we did not have, that was hidden, that was not revealed, To men of other ages. That was what Jesus was talking to them about. When he told them, In my father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you this? I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back. That's the rapture and take you to be with me where I am. Uh, So, and, and then you know the place where I'm going. You know where we came from through those verses. This is new information for the disciples. They did not have a context put it in, other than the fact that Jesus spoke these words and who Jesus was on his authority. So, 23 and 24, let's get to it. Jesus says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching and my Father will love him and we will come to them and make our home with them. That's 23. So notice, it's about the teaching here. What about the teaching? Well, this new dynamics of Jesus pleading with them. Listen, the Father is in me, I am in the Father. So, this is the teaching that came out of Jesus as a result of him being uh, in this dynamic relationship with the Father. The Father's in me, I am in the Father. Even when we went to the John 10 passage and he made those statements, he gave the reason why he made them. Because, believe, if you don't believe anything else, believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me believe the works that I'm doing. he's going to give that same argument again in the coming verses. So 24 anyone who does not love me, who does not love me will not obey my teaching. these words you hear are not my own. they belong to the father who sent me. see so the father is the one living in Christ. those words belong to the Father. And what does the Father bring to the table? He brings this new theology. He's the one creating this theological crisis in the disciples. And they are called to believe this information. Now, we're we're going to have to quit for now. But next week, we'll continue with this thought. So you have some notes. You have some understanding of this. Please take time to read it and go over the the teachings that we've had previously when it comes to um, baptism of the Spirit, all those features uh, and we'll review this and we will attack again next week. Let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you Father, we're privileged to be in this age, uh, the calling that we have received and we uh, intend to walk worthy of that calling. It is the reason why we're here today, so that we can come to the knowledge of the truth, the full knowledge. We thank you for those who have attended, and we pray that you will continue to give us wisdom, more light, so that we can see the path that is before us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.
1: Amen. amen.